And we have next the booking reads The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Tolstoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Bookening. We're doing our third Tolstoy book, one that's a little bit shorter than some of the others. I am Nathan. That's Jake. That's, hey. Hey, Jake. What's up, Nathan? I'm just doing my voice check here. Yeah, it's what Jake sounds like. And this is what Buen sounds like. Cheep, 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 cheep. Oh, sorry. That was my bird. I put it away. That was this is what I actually said. Like. Yeah, that was Buin. But Ben, the man, sounds like this. Yes. Well, thank you for giving all our listeners the bird. Something that <laughs> has never happened on this podcast before or since. Are we already ready for some Tolstoy context? Because I've got some. Man, I'm so ready. All right. Yep. It's the context <laughs> alarm that goes off before Nathan gives us context. Okay, so Leo Tolstoy. We've had a bunch of contexts with better men than I am before, so I'm going to burn through this, but it is he is an interesting guy. Leo Tolstoy lived from 1828 to 1910, which puts him in a wild time for Russia. Let me take you back to the 1600s, the 17th century as I call it. The Romanov dynasty ascends to power. Before that, Russia sucks. I mean, Russia has always had this weird, been this weird semi-barbaric place, but Russia is really barbaric. It doesn't have their act together. But then the Romanovs take power in 1613, and this institutes a period of stability in Russia. Yes, I pronounce it stability, leading to the reforms of who? Famous Russian... Nicholas. No. Peter the Great in the 1600s. Totally reformed. John Paul. John Paul. No, this is Russia. This is Peter the Great. No. He reformed Russia, extensively modernized their military, their economy. Peter the Wolf. Their culture. This is Peter the Great. And proclaimed Russia an empire in 1721. And that empire expanded rapidly and became one of the most powerful nations in the world. You've got your Catherine the Great. You've got your czars. You've got your high Russian culture through the 19th century. And the reason I bring all of that up is because you kind of have to understand Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and all those guys as being kind of the final flowering of Russian culture that began in the 1600s and sort of culminated there at the very same time that Russia was falling to pieces, which is why I say that Tolstoy lived in a wildly transformative time. Because you basically, in Tolstoy's area, you have two two equal and opposite things happening. You have the flowering of Russian culture with Russian novels, like the a, a golden age of literature and poetry and everything akin to, you could only compare it to Elizabethan in England or maybe the 20s, 30s in America. I don't know. But it's like this great time for Russian letters. Name one of the great times for literature. In general, you've got all that stuff. You've got a flower. And music. And music. Yeah, and music. So you've got this flowering of Russian culture, but you've also got the fact that Russia, while they had all these great reforms and stuff and became a really powerful empire in the 1600s, they got stuck there and they didn't grow past it. And the whole world is changing and industrialization is coming and all kinds of things are happening in the Western world while Russia is still stuck. We got this little thing called democracy in America stuff like that. But 
Russia is basically a backwater feudal country of kings and landowners and serfs. There's been no significant political change since Peter the Great. The czars are increasingly tyrannical and out of touch with their people. And of course, this will lead to lots of wonderful things happening in the 20th century. Tolstoy died, as I said, in 1910. Seven years later, you have the, what's the first revolution? The October Revolution is the big one that brought Stalin into power. But before that, I think it's the February Revolution, which deposed the czars and stuff like that. So in Tolstoy's life, we have these two kinds of groups duking it out. We have the Slavophiles who would be rooting for Russian superiority and would be still believing in the czars and would be conservatives. And then you have the westernizers who are pushing for western style everything. And the czars were seen as increasingly tyrannical and you had all these liberal thinkers screaming for rights, rights, revolution. And yes, here it is. Seven years after Tolstoy's death, we have the February Revolution where the czars were deposed. And then a few years, months later, the October Revolution, which brings in Lenin. So, Well, and the decade before Tolstoy is born, you have Napoleon. Right. <laughs> and the year after he dies, you have World War I. Right. <laughs> right. So the bookends of Tolstoy's actual life are Napoleon and World War I, neither of which he lived through, but which frame in this tumultuous period in all of European politics and especially Russian politics. Right. And Russia. And life. They, Napoleon did not do well against them. Something about the winner, I heard. Something about the winner. Yeah. So, but, you know, it's in the Russian character, I guess, if I'm allowed to generalize like that. To this day, right now, we are dealing with the fact that we have this group of people that in some ways have one foot in the modern world and in some ways have one foot in the feudal past, the patriarchal past, whatever you want to say about it. So Tolstoy very much is a man standing between these two worlds with sympathies for both, kind of torn, kind of writing about it. It's all over his novels, as it is all the novels of the period. You know, you always have the hoity-toity people speaking French because that was the cool language of the time that like the hip with it people would talk. And then you'll have the conservative old guard. You know, there's always like dad figures or grandpa figures who are like, I do not understand how marriage works anymore. I do not understand how politics work. And then you always have the serfs and Tolstoy has a very sentimental relationship with them. But then, yeah, so all this stuff. Mm. But Leo Tolstoy, born into a well-off family, grew up at their estate not far from Moscow, sadly faced some significant losses early on. Mom died before he turned two, and then his dad was murdered while traveling when he was nine. And then I think his grandma and his guardian died. A guardian, like, aunt or something died in quick succession after that. So Tolstoy and his five siblings get shuffled around to different aunts in Western Russia. And it's really kind of a crummy childhood in its way, but he has money. And he always really, it's interesting to speculate about where this comes from, but he, I mean, I guess I, it's not interesting. I guess it's obvious, but he really idealized it. Like he, he wrote, his first major work was called Childhood. And it's just about how wonderful his childhood was. But once again, his mom died when he was two. So what actual stable, good childhood he had, I'm not sure. But he certainly did look back on it. Fondly. Fondly. He had real sentiment for it. Homeschooled by tutors, kicks off his university journey in 1844 at the University of Kazan, diving into Oriental languages, baby. But oops, his grades weren't cutting it. 
So he made the switch to law studies, another in a long line of terrible scholars. I don't know that we've ever had an author who just excelled at his studies. He's getting into law, literature, ethics, reading Stern, Dickens, Rousseau, big Rousseau fan, even wore a medallion with Rousseau's face instead of like most people would have worn a cross, but he wore a Rousseau medallion. So oh, really cool young man. It sounds like a big fun, fun dude. Actually, maybe he was a fun dude because he liked wine, women, and song. He was always drinking and gambling. And if you've read any of his novels, you know, his heroes always have Either they start here and they grow spiritually aware and get away away from it, like Pierre or like Levin. They start a few years after that, and it's a shameful thing and that he has to talk about with his fiance and stuff like that. So he actually left the university in 1947 without a degree, went back home. Again, he's got money, so he's just trying to occupy his time. He goes back to his estate with plans to self-educate to manage his estate, to better the lives of his serfs. He's got some idealism. And then he goes and hangs out with ladies and drinks and lives a totally dissipated life until about 1851 when his brother Nikolai, who was an army officer, ended up in the campaign surrounding the Crimean War. And Tolstoy tags along and ends up being in the Crimean War. And around this time, he's keeping diaries and becoming increasingly self-reflective. And one of the things that's fun and complicated about Tolstoy's legacy is that we have so much self-documentation. So his earliest diary kicks off with concerns about a possible venereal disease, him him writing down rules for his own, this is how I need to behave, this is how I'm going to stop failing, these are my 12 rules for life. You just see a young man like trying to process, process, figure out his life, self sort of flagellating, all the kinds of stuff. I guess if you know Tolstoy's work, you would kind of expect. But he writes this book called Childhood about his childhood, basically, and sends it off for publication uh, anonymously. And it gets published under a pseudonym and just the critical people love it. And he starts publishing stories, drawing from his experience in the war. These very, what would you say, formally experimental stories, trying cool, artsy things. These like sketches of the war. One of them was written in the second person as though a tour guide were taking you through the war. You walk down and you see the soldiers lying in their blood. It's like that sort How of thing. How many truly great authors actually got started as war reporters or guys writing and processing war stuff. A lot of them. That's a lot. Yeah. It's really a lot. I mean, the whole, we've talked about it a million times, the whole lost generation in the 20s. All of them. Hemingway. Hemingway. Even if you jump to C.S. Lewis right. or jump forward to Dennis Johnson or just mm. people that pop into my mind. Yeah. Not Cormac McCarthy, interestingly enough. He'd, I don't think he'd be so fascinated. Yeah, well, exactly. That's so fixated. Yeah, Gene Wolfe fought Gene in the Korean War. Yeah, it d- doesn't shock me at all. He, his the the other sketch that's really famous from the time is a guy that's about to be blown up, and you just have his stream of consciousness, just like here's all the thoughts that go through this guy's mind two seconds before he dies, and it ends with this famous quote: "The hero of my story is the truth." So. Tolstoy's uh, pretty excited about himself. He's an idealistic young man. 
But anyway, he's hung up his army, army uniform. He's becoming more of a literary celebrity by this time. The St. Petersburg intelligentsia has given him a pat on the back. But he's also kind of a hard sell for that crowd because he's egotistical and he has his own ideas. And he just he's one of those guys who goes through life never really fitting in with any particular crowd or movement. Like he's always going to be at the wrong angle to somebody or to something. If, if an idea is popular, then Tolstoy is going to know better than that idea, even if the popular idea is the one that he was espousing five years ago. By the time it's actually popular, it'll be, he'll have moved past it. I think we probably all know people like this. And he's still gambling heavily and losing money. Goes to Paris in 1957, loses a lot of money to gambling, and then goes back to Russia and decides that teaching is his true calling. So he sets up a school for peasant kids, for the surf, surf children, on his estate, does that for a minute and a half, and then decides, you know what, I think I actually need to jet around Western Europe and study teaching theories. So he jets around Western Europe and tries to learn about teaching theories and starts writing about these hugely controversial articles at the time, names like Progress and the Definition of Education, which claims that history has no fixed rules, and Quote, who should learn writing of whom? Peasant children of us or we of peasant children? So this guy's got theories until what's the stupid thing that you see on posters and stuff? Before I was, before I had children, I used to have a thousand theories and zero children. Then I had a thousand children and zero theories. In 1962, he ties the knot. With, 1962. So yeah, sorry. In 1962. Zero stars. <laughs> yep. The summer of love. The. <laughs> And it's not the summer of love. Yeah, sorry, I was off <laughs> even on that. So zero negative stars. Negative stars. He ties the knot with a daughter of a big shot Moscow doctor named Sonia Bears and shifts his focus to family life, raising a whopping 13 children with 10 of them making it past infancy, which is a pretty good rate for the time. So he's got a big family. He's got a happy family. Some of the sweetest passages in both of Tolstoy's great novels are depicting the joys and the toil of family life and of young marriage and stuff. And Tolstoy, while we'll see that everything didn't turn out all that well, apparently had a very happy early life with his wife and with his children. And that's when he wrote his great works, starting with War and Peace and then moving on to Anna Karenina, which we've got plenty of podcasts that you can listen to if you want more details about those. War and Peace came first? Yeah. Yeah, Anna Karenina is... I tend to forget that and invert them. Yeah, it's, it's easy to invert them because War and the Peace is more epic and it's, it feels like the more ambitious of the two in some ways. Well, I, mean, I have this quote in my head of Tolstoy saying Anna Karenina was the first novel he ever wrote, but he it didn't is. count War and Peace a novel. That's right. He didn't count it a novel. Right, exactly. So War and Peace, I, I think it makes sense when you think about how perfect Anna Karenina is and how relatively sloppy War and Peace is. It's yeah, like Anna, yeah. Anna Karenina is the work of a more mature artist, and that doesn't mean that you can't like War and Peace more if that's— Or consider it the better work. Or consider it the best, better work. It's just—it's so ambitious that it couldn't possibly fulfill everything it's trying to do, whereas Anna Karenina is much more contained and molded and rewritten and all that stuff. So around 1850 and then into the early 1860s, Tolstoy gets really experimental in his works. He's always trying to find ways to voice his like moral and philosophical kind of ideas. And so one story he wrote was called Three Deaths, which ponders the death of a noblewoman, a peasant, and a tree. <laughs> so 
There's a reason that <laughs> only some of Tolstoy's works are the ones that we actually. Another one, Kulstamer, The Story of a Horse, which describes society from the perspective of, spoiler alert, an old horse mocking societal norms, stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I mis- I actually mixed up the timeline. Zero stars. So it's in the 19- 1860s that he writes War and Peace and then Anna Karenina. But then after wrapping up Anna Karenina, he falls into just existential malaise. He gets depressed. And he pours it all into a book called My Confession, which comes out in 1884, where he's just like, we're all going to die. Everything's meaningless. And then he looks around and he sees the serfs and the common folk and sees how much religion bolsters them and keeps them going. And so he's like, I should take my religion seriously. And he's drawn to the Russian Orthodox Church. And he becomes a very prominent member for a minute and a half, but... Gets himself excommunicated. Yeah, he sours on it and sours on all Christian institutions because you know how institutional Christianity is. It distorts the real Christianity. That's right. And, and Tolstoy, luckily for us, he cracked the code to Jesus's actual message and spent the rest of his days fleshing out and spreading his newfound faith Um, which did, as Jake said, lead to his excommunication from the Russian Orthodox Church in 1901. Now, it is important to note I'm making fun of him, and nobody takes Tolstoy as a moral philosopher or as a religious thinker very seriously now. But at the time, people took it pretty seriously. People, he had followers, he had... He was corresponding with Gandhi. Yeah, he was, well, he was a big inspiration for Gandhi, as we'll... Get the get to. So in the 1880s, he writes three sort of interconnected works. An Examination of Dogmatic Theology, sounds fun. Union and Translation of the Four Gospels, and What I Believe. And then he adds things like, The Kingdom of God is Within You, a bunch of essays. And to sum it up, he says, Sacraments are dumb. There's no miracles. There's no Holy Trinity. These, are, these things are all veils that hide the real Christian message, which is highlighted in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, actually, the Old Testament's pretty useless, and a big chunk of the New Testament's pretty useless. But what Tolstoy did, he knew Greek, I guess, so he made his own improved versions of the Gospels. Actually, I think he learned Greek so that he could do this. So he figured out that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, but just a wise dude who had figured out and kind of communed with life's truths. And it's important to say Tolstoy hadn't gotten here. You can see the seeds of this in his great novels, particularly Anna Karenina, but he, he wasn't there. He had much more trust in institutional religion, although he always was questioning it. But mm-hmm. when his great works were written, not including the one we're reading today, we're talking about today, he would have had more trust in the Russian Orthodox Church than he did by the time that he came up with all this bunk. So he had five core principles to his religion, no anger. No lust, no oaths, non-resistance to evil, big influence on Mahatma Gandhi, and love for your enemies. And the non-resistance to evil just means you fight evil without evil means, especially violence. So he was a pacifist, which weirdly sort of led him to be being a proto-anarchist because he was always urging people to dodge military service, to not vote, to skip the court system. Yeah, so, so it's almost like when you embrace these kinds of things, you just end up being... Going insane. Going insane and become a rebel with no consistent philosophy. 
Well, Anabaptist style. You dial on, yeah. on a train. Yeah, you dial on, on a train. Well, so the thing that really sucks, though, especially if you have affection for the man, which is impossible not to, if you've read and loved his two great novels and, and the one that we're talking about today, is he gets this idea of no lust, which leads to total abstinence. Like, in other words, he stops sleeping with his wife, which does not make her happy. Another thing that does not make her happy is that. Tolstoy's disciples are coming and onto his estate and he's becoming kind of this holy man. And so she's putting up with all these ugly, unkempt hippies, you know, proto-Russian hippies, like just showing up to worship at the feet of her husband. And he's got his, his sort of communal, take what you want. Yeah. Never refuse anybody yeah, kind of so, mindset. So there's no boundaries in his life between him and anybody else or his family and anybody else. They'd all come and they can live on his property and they can take what they want. And he w- and he just has, as a matter of principle, to sort of just give. Right. And require his family to give. Yeah. So he really destroys the affection of this wife who he loved and who loved him. He was not a great man. I think I, I didn't re-encounter this <laughs> coming, doing my research this time, but I seem to remember that he fathered some children with serfs and stuff like that. So I don't want to over-sentimentalize his marriage, but- at some point, they loved each other, and that really turned very, very sour. And his fiction turned pretty sour. So he's writing these goofy moral tales. One of them is called Where Love Is, God Is. One of them is called How Much Land Does a Man Need, which got a rave review from none other than James Joyce. Called it the world's greatest story, How Much Land Does a Man Need. So maybe that should be our next delve into Tolstoy. They're really moralistic James Joyce knew what a good story was and just didn't happen into writing exactly one of them. Yeah. Then maybe we could trust it. Exactly. <laughs> so it's actually around this time that he writes The Death of Ivan Ilyich, which really stands out as being a lot better than everything, you know, a lot less. It, obviously, it's got its own strain of moralism. It's got its own thing it wants to say. It certainly feels more cynical than Anna Karenina or War and Peace. Right. But it's not it, – well, we'll talk about it. It's a good story. It doesn't fall prey to the things that make. Yeah. The, there's a reason we don't. We haven't. You haven't even heard the names of anything else that I just said. But you have heard of the death of Ivan Elliot. It's all stuff like a story of a proud man who aims for sainthood, but then learns you can't become a saint by chasing after it. Meanwhile, there's a simple woman who's unaware of her innate goodness. It's like annoying crap like that. <laughs> frankly, in 1899, he unveiled his last big work called Resurrection because he needed the royalties to assist some persecuted people or something like that. And that novel has its defenders, but it's certainly not. Nobody thinks it comes close to the brilliance of War and Peace or Anna Karenina. The other thing I should say is that as Tolstoy becomes enlightened, he rejects his earlier work. So he mm, he, yeah. he, re- he rejects Anna Karenina. He rejects War and Peace. He wrote this. Thinks they're sentimental trash. Yeah, he wrote this this famous essay called "What Is Art," where he argued that genuine art demands a deep emotional connection to like a specific experience. And I've talked about that essay on podcast before. I couldn't tell you which ones because it's very influential for the Method School of Acting, which was developing around the same time in Russia. And so the, the whole your Marlon Brando, your Al Pacino, that whole school comes actually out of people being inspired by this sort of spiritual view of art as just connecting to the deepest emotions that that Tolstoy had. Wasn't a big fan of his peers like Dostoevsky, 
liked some stories with that Anton Chekhov wrote, but he told Chekhov that his plays were even worse than Shakespeare's. Even yes. worse than Shakespeare. Yeah. Which was kind of Tolstoy being funny, I think. Like it was a celebrated <laughs> bon mot at the time. But also I think Tolstoy probably really thought it. So I thought that was a good insult. Like I said, his family didn't warm up to his lifestyle changes, except for his daughter, Alexandra. She was always his favorite. She was the one he left the bulk of his fortune to. But, you know, his wife was mad because he didn't want to sleep with her and was abandoning the family and had these constant, the burden of disciples and stuff like that. And so they, they have this extremely troubled marriage. And we now have, as one thing I was reading said, we have too much information about it. Like this scholar was just like, it's immodest. We should not have as much detail. But the fact is Tolstoy kept a diary. His wife kept a diary and they exchanged diaries. So they read each other's diaries and then they wrote about each other's diaries. And so we have a perfect, painful, horrible record. And people have made movies and written plays and written novels, taking sides, you know, who is the real hero, Tolstoy or Mrs. Tolstoy. And it's just like, it's just an ugly, ugly thing and ends in an ugly way, haunted by all of this and seeing the gulf between his principles and his own sort of unprincipled life. Tolstoy decides he's going to get away from it all. Runs away, I should say, with his daughter, his favorite daughter, Alexandra, and his doctor. But the media catches up with him, figures that, you know, this great literary hero, philosopher, hero, religious figure has fled his home. And uh, yeah, famously, within days, he got pneumonia and died of heart failure at a railroad station, which is a pretty ironic end for a guy that wrote the most famous, one of the most famous deaths of a literary character takes place at a train station. So people like to take sides and say... Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Yeah, well, exactly. Man. Is what he put at the front of that book. Yeah. And it, yeah. Should have listened to your own... Should have listened to Tolstoy, Tolstoy. Yeah. So Crazy Life, I mean, he was a man who was a better writer than he was a man. He's kind of an easy mark for a certain kind of conservative who wants to make fun of a certain kind of well, this just me might as well talk about Paul Johnson yeah, for half a minute yeah, yeah. because there is a whole world of, and we love on this show, we think it's important that we not separate the author from the work and that we see, that's why we have these big context sections, right? You want to see the work in the context of the author's life and understand that the ideas and the perspective and the morality that come through are shaped by a man who has his own life, his own moral principles or lack thereof his own sins that he's justifying or trying to deal with or wrestle with or cope with or whatever. And that all factors in and plays in. And the philosophy that you see sort of worked out on the page or that moves you bore its fruit in the life of the man who created it. You really shouldn't separate those things. You need to reckon with them. And there can be disparity between them too. And that's where, that's where it gets really interesting with Tolstoy. Yeah is because, you know, with a lot of these guys, if you're talking about Hemingway or you're talking about a lot of authors, they really are just sort of a lot, you know, the stories can be very wish fulfillment or they can be the working out of their principles, which you also see in their lives. And in Tolstoy, it feels much more complex or complicated where he was just, he couldn't possibly live up to his principles. And then his principles kept getting weirder and weirder, 
Well, I just I looked up a quote. There's this famous quote by the British critic Matthew Arnold who said, a novel by Tolstoy is not a work of art, but a piece of life. And I think that's the thing is that he was able to stand outside of himself in, that, in, a, in a unique way. In that, I think it's sort of like, you know, we, Nathan and I were talking about this off mic. Really, the only, I think, I don't think there are really any literary comparison points for Tolstoy. The closest you get to a comparison point is somebody like Michelangelo, who a sculpture of Michelangelo so perfectly captures the detail of the human form and these little anatomical details that people come back 500 years later and are like, we don't know how he saw or understood this or got this little muscle right. Like we did not, the medical scientific community didn't understand but somehow Michelangelo did. Right. He was able to observe it and wrap his head around it. And there's nothing wrong with, like there's no flaw you can, anatomical flaw you can point out in David or whatever <laughs> the actual piece is. So somebody like Michelangelo or da Vinci, who's a sort of colossal genius of observation and Tolstoy in his writing. And, he, you know, it especially comes through in War and Peace and in A Karenina, but it also comes through in this tiny little novella is just such a keen observer of people, character. One of the things that people said about Tolstoy when he got into his sage years, you know, when people would go visit him as this religious figure, this venerated old man, is that, you know, one of the stories, maybe apocryphal, is that he would just be able to read your mind. And it wasn't that he could read your mind. It was that he always knew what everybody was thinking. He just had this preternatural sense of empathy and understanding of, I don't know, that's that's probably not literally true, but... It's certainly what it's the kind of legend that would spring up about this guy. Yeah, it's what everybody who would come to him would want and hope to have happen. So they'd, you know, whether it was real or not, it's what they would find. Because what happens when you read Tolstoy is you see somebody who's such a thorough observer of the human condition and individual people, you feel like he sees and understands everybody in your life in a way that you don't understand in in you that he would be able to see you and understand you and wrap his head around you and be able and willing to step outside of himself enough to fully observe things about you that maybe you don't even observe because you don't have the moral courage to examine yourself on the level that he has the will and courage to look into any individual character. And he does it all over the top, all over the place with all of his characters. It really feels that way. There's not a character that steps on scene that he doesn't have a th- Thorough, pretty thorough psychological understanding mm-hmm. of it is a certain sort of courage. And especially I think that courage comes through in the death of Ivan Ilyich, where you have somebody who's facing death to really put yourself fully in the shoes as fully as one maybe could put yourself in the shoes of a dying man and feel his feelings and think his thoughts and understand, understand it from a sort of a, both internally and from a step removed I know why he's not willing to go in, ex- in question whether he lived a good life or not. I'm going to explain why and show you why. I'm not just going to tell you, I'm going to show you why. And we're going to dance around it, and then we're going to get there by the end. And a man who's able and willing to do that, he's got to be able to ask the same questions of himself. It takes a lot of work to do that sort of thing. The interesting thing to me is that Oftentimes with these kinds of gifts, there there comes a weakness, a commensurate weakness. And Tolstoy obviously was a diseased man in his mind and his 
hyper powers of empathy dro- did drive him mad, I think, and did drive him to a, a sad and debauched life in many ways. Mm-hmm. But he is unique in that disease doesn't seem to work itself into the novels. You don't feel bad reading Tolstoy. Like, you don't feel like he's actually going places that you shouldn't. Maybe for him, he was. Maybe in order to put what he put on the page, he had to. But you don't end up feeling the burden of it the way, I I can't pull an example right now, but sometimes you'll read a book or watch a movie or something and you'll be like, man, that author or that filmmaker is corrupting us all because of his... Well, Cormac McCarthy is a good example. Right, right? Cormac McCarthy Mm -hmm. has delved so deep into the human condition of total depravity, as we would say, that he's not wrong, but... It cannot possibly be wholesome. Right. What he had to do to himself to get there, and then certainly... And, he, and you feel that because of how corrupting it is in and of itself as you read it on the page. The closest thing I would say, having only read this and Anna Karenina one time, well, listen to it as an audiobook. This is awesome. Is that what I felt, especially tracking Levin's journey and thought processes and emotions through Anna Karenina, is that he never did find a stable point of reference. And that did not the back of my mind some as I was going. Like he never found a stable point of moral authority or solidity in his life. Now, it that's because he's Tolstoy. I know, but I'm just saying I could feel it. Yeah, I, I, could, I, I could feel it like a, like, like a pressure as I read the novel. I, I think it's true. I mean, I think it's one of the things that makes him great and one of the things that ultimately makes his books just a little bit unsatisfying for being the greatest books ever written is that life goes on, cannot uh, actually arrive at an endpoint. He will yeah, not right. give himself yeah. the artifice of, well, now Levin's life was fixed. Now he'd landed Because somewhere. life actually goes on. Well, but life actually goes on, but also Tolstoy never found it either. Right. So he didn't have it to give you. Exactly. And there is something and I felt there that. is something wanting in the spiritual awakening. When he wouldn't of, have trusted it. That's what I think is true, too. He wouldn't have trusted it if he had arrived. Mm. You claim you right. arrive at it, you'd have, you're not there. Right. right. It's, it's essential mysticism. And yeah. that's, oh, let's just use the word toxic. I don't mean Anna Karenina is toxic. I don't mean that at all. But you know what I mean. I mean, that spirit taken to its logical conclusion, is bad. Yeah, bad I, for you, I agree. Bad for and yet I return to my original point, which is I don't feel like those books are corrupting in the same way. The Dostoevsky, for example. No, I, I agree with you. Um, agree with you totally. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, you, I don't even think you have to defend it. I, I don't think there are books that are maybe, in terms of fiction, more edifying, more wholesome than those books. I just think, <clears throat> you know, you want to put him on the mountain of observation. It's like, you actually want somebody, like, I've heard people, you know, say, oh, you you know, young men need to know themselves, so they should read Dostoevsky. It's like, dude, nobody should read Dostoevsky to know themselves. No, you should read Tolstoy to know everybody. But you should read Tolstoy to know everybody, to understand humanity, right? In terms of just being a pure humanist, the best expression of humanism that you could have, somebody who, in the school of in a, of realism, like Tolstoy is going to explain you and the world and everybody else around you, and he's going to do it in the in such a universal way while being in Russia in the most foreign context mm-hmm. you can imagine, which speaks to the universality of his understanding of people. It's just good. It's good for the soul to read Tolstoy in a yeah. way that I, apart from somebody like Austin who is good for the soul because of her moralizing. Tolstoy, for all of his 
philosophy and moralizing in other places. Doesn't do a whole lot of it in these books. I mean, he does. He writes about characters that are in the process of doing it. That's right. Yeah, but, but he's always at a remove from them. It reminds me, uh, did you guys, either of you ever have the misfortune of watching Wim Wenders' existential moody uh, oh Wings of Desire? I think I, no. I saw one of those. Maybe uh, it was that. Uh, well, Wings uh, of Desire is this famous art film yeah, from the yeah, 90s yeah, yeah, about, yeah. or maybe the late 80s, about angels. There's and two of them. Is, it's a, it's a, these angels that, you know, it's very cool. They wear trench coats and it's all shot in black and white and stuff like that. Is it John Travolta? It is. It, John, the John Travolta movie was actually a bad Americanized ripoff of, oh, really? of Wings of Desire. Was it Michael or whatever? Yeah, Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. saw that. Oh, I did see that. Which is, <laughs> which is just terrible and tripe. But uh, and in its way, so is Wings of Desire. But Wings of Desire is in a very artsy movie, if you like that sort of thing. Anyway, it's about these angels that are condemned to observe humanity without being able to affect humanity to partake and so this guy falls in love with a lady and it's all city of angels yeah it's it's all this longing and kind of stuff but or or (laughs) maybe city 90s movies city City of angels might actually be the wings of desire remake city of angels wings of nick cage falls in love with a woman so he falls and then and then she dies and now he's got a mortal existence or whatever yes yeah city of angels is the u.s remake i was confusing it with michael so yeah, if anybody's ever seen the terrible Nick Cage movie, City it's of Angels, it's got a Goo Goo Dolls song behind it. Yeah, but Wings of Desire is much better than that. I'm just gonna say it. Anyway, Tolstoy feels like one of those angels to me, like just an impartial but sympathetic observer who just walks into the middle of a party or middle of a situation or the bedroom with a husband, wife, whatever, and just sees everything and sits there a little bit dispassionately, but also with compassion and just records everything and there is nobody else that does that the way that he does it proust tries but proust is completely corrupt there's a impartiality a neutrality that tolstoy achieves that's the thing there's many artists have people or experiences or like martin scorsese could tell you what it's like to be a brooklyn kid that grew up around gangsters like he understands that better than anybody Steven Spielberg can tell you what it's like to be a little brat running around the suburbs in 1950s, whatever. People have different experiences that they can evoke perfectly, but it's it's the breadth of Tolstoy. The fact that he can do it for everybody and then do it for the horse is is really something. That he can do it for men, for women, for bad guys, for good guys, for butlers, for kings, for like it just does not matter. He can go. That's why I use the angel analogy. It's like he can go into any room in the world and see what happens there. And record it. And see it better than everybody participating in it. And all the other guys that are We're all of, wrapped up in their own heads. Right. And don't even understand their own motivations. And, and so much they're of, so busy acting. Yeah. I just find that most m- fiction that's called realist is actually just as didactic and moralistic as Jane Austen. You know, it's just bad moral. It's just like, well, I think the world sucks. And so I'm going to be realistic by informing all my characters with my knowledge that the world sucks. Tolstoy doesn't feel like he has an agenda like that. He just, I mean, he does. I'm not saying he's actually above any of the normal human things. No artist is. He just manages to Mm -hmm. successfully pretend like he's not. Obviously, there's a design. Obviously, he has moral ideas about Anna Karenina and Levin and all the rest. Obviously, he has characters he likes better than others. But he manages to give you the artifice of not, of just being an observer. And it's really incredible. Um... Hey, listen to that. It's the plane going over, indicating, you know, planes have 
planes carry baggage, Ben? I do. Well, we all carry baggage. What baggage do you carry about Tolstoy? My and baggage is pretty. Other. It's pretty plain, Nathan. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Wait, was that a pun? <laughs> Keep laughing. I'm trying to pick up a vibe here from you. I just can't, can't oh, quite read it. That 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 went right over my head. <laughs> <laughs> flew over hey, the cuckoos. <laughs> it, it did. <laughs> Wait, I read only in one. A, flew I, over the I, I, I read in a Karenina. And that's the only Tolstoy that I've ever read. Loved it. It was great. And then I read this. I don't have any other baggage. (laughs) I told you it was (laughs) plain. Oh, man. Uh, Jake, your baggage? I have read Anna Karenina twice now. I have read War and Peace. I read that Christmas story that was stupid. That we did that one time. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. It's the love one that you mentioned earlier, right? Mm. I really love Tolstoy and admire him. And I had not read this coming to it. I'm glad I did. My baggage is that I also love Tolstoy and have read Anna Karenina three times, I think. War and Peace only once, but I mean, it's War and Peace. How many times do I have to read War and Peace? I'd like to read it again. It's just that life is busy. Uh, yeah, I mean, rereading Anna Karenina actually probably has pushed off rereading <laughs> War and Peace again. I still cherish the idea that I'll come back and reread it at some point. I do, but I do too. But I want to. I mean, I'd if, like to read it the first time. If I'm giving myself two letters, like if I'm just like I'm going to read in order to be improved and to have read and to have conversed with the great minds, it's like there's still enough. Unread. Yeah, maybe I should read In Search of Lost Time once before reading War and Peace twice. I don't know. Or maybe I should read War and Peace twice and say screw the rest. There's a good argument for that. But... It'd be like, well, never mind. Well, in any case, I have read this before. This is my second time reading it. I just grabbed this at a library one time and had one of those wonderful experiences where you sit down thinking you're just going to read a paragraph to check something out. I think I knew, I liked Tolstoy. I had already read it and read it at the time and then I just like, Powered through and found myself in the existential shoes of a man. Named Ivan. Named Ivan. Man called Ivan. Turned into a movie. He was dying. Man called Otto, the... Ova, I think it was originally, but yeah. It was Ova. I've tried to watch it. And then it became Otto. Yes. Played by Tom Hanks. Don't care about either one. That's my take on that. Hey, speaking of takes... The camera is taking some pictures, ushering us into the big picture. What did you guys think about The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Tolstoy? It's really good. It's really effective. It does put you in the dude's shoes and his sad life. I don't know. It does a whole lot. And a little bit of space makes you think about, made me think about my life, my death, and maybe think about the way that people without hope, without God, approach the end of their life. Yeah, I mean, you have to wonder how much of this story went through Tolstoy's mind in that train station. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, having gone this far into the mind of someone dying, does it give you anything to cling on to when you are actually that man? Or is it just, well, here I go. It's always different when it's you doing it. Will this story give me anything when when my turn comes? I don't know. I mean, I, well, actually, my bigger context for reading this is I've been listening back through a conference that 
we helped to put on years ago, or you guys did anyway, helped to put on years ago on death up in Bloomington. So I've just been listening to talk after talk. <laughs> then I read this. And it, I don't know, it, it just makes you think as a pastor or just as a Christian, like, boy, people who are dying really need permission to face their death and the horror of it, and they need hope. And so that's some of what was going through my brain. It's like, you could go your whole life and have nothing, and no one around you. You could be all alone. And I am sure am rich to not be all alone like that and have people around me who would help me die, help me face God and face myself and whatever. But yeah. Yeah, it is a remarkable, for being, for never trying to strive, seeming to strive for a moral effect, it is a remarkably moralistic little story of mm-hmm. a man who, a shallow dude who, I mean, you can imagine the Dickens version of this that would just oh, like man. rub uh, your nose and be terrible. the uselessness of this guy's life, the spiritual deafness and dumbness of this guy and blindness of this guy. And then his This horror. is how most people die. They die completely alone. Surrounded they, by lies. Surrounded by lies. That's the, man, that's nobody, the other part. Nobody wants to admit the truth. Nobody in the hospital room wants to admit the truth. None of the doctors or nurses want to admit the truth. They just want to go about their job and go about their lives. Nobody wants to feel it. Nobody wants to face it because they'd have to face it for themselves. And when it's your turn, you have to reckon with that and the fact that you were that person your whole life too. And Well, it does also capture another thing. I think of it as the, the Philip Seymour Hoffman in Magnolia guy. The, the music. Yeah, the guy that Gerasim is, Gerasim is just matter of fact and able to be such a comfort by just being in the room with death and being okay with it and just mm-hmm. being chill. Yeah. And being and giving some having that generosity of spirit to be that person. You do meet those nurses. It's not every nurse, it's not every person drawn to the nursing. No, but they do exist. They exist. Mm-hmm. Some of them do go into elder care or work at nursing homes. Some of them are just people, people in your life. You like you know that person isn't afraid to just sit at a deathbed and massage their feet or whatever it is they need, hold hands is with the dying person. deeply feels the fact that this is the end of all of us. This is the most important thing that we all walk through. Or maybe in some magical way with some people doesn't deeply feel, you know, is able to or just both, sort of yeah. skate above it in a way that may not ultimately even be that great for that person, but is sure helpful for the dying person. I don't know. Yeah, I think Gerizim is more of the... He, we have that moment with him where he's like, okay, I guess it depends on how you read it. Yeah. Why shouldn't mm-hmm. I? You're dying. But Ivan certainly feels as though Gerizim feels the weight of what's happening and hopes to be treated the same way mm-hmm. when it's his turn. So there's, a, there's at least some sense there, I think. There, I felt like there was. Yeah, it's no, subtle. I was, I was trying to take it away from Yarzy <laughs> or, or from those that type of person. It's subtle. It's interesting. I mean, Tolstoy never gives you the thing that Dickens or a hack would give you in that scene, which is, he, you know, Garrison, tell me about your boy. Garrison, right. tell me. But he doesn't. You don't have a big, even a Magnolia esque right. scene. You don't have anything like that. You don't have the scene like when his little son comes in and you have that really beautiful moment of sadness and love between father and son. There's no speech, there's no talk, there's no, it's just like such a tiny little bit of love and his empty dying. But it means, it means a lot. Tolstoy gives those moments so much heft. Yep. Yeah. Without giving you speeches, without well, giving you... The moralizing in that whole bit 
really is just Tolstoy really does believe that modern society has corrupted the world, mm-hmm. yeah. corrupted any, anybody's ability to reckon with truth. And the reason the, that Gerizim is able to have such a simple, comfortable, sober grasp of the reality of death is because he's a serf. Yeah, there is a he, reverse he class snobbery yeah. going yeah. on there. He lives close to yep. the earth and he's not part of that world. He's, he yeah. didn't go to college and he didn't get sucked into society, into law, into moving up the ladder and all that stuff. Yep. So there is a, there's a philosophical perspective about that. Right. And mm-hmm. there's something shallow about the wife and about the daughter. Although, I, again, I love how much she doesn't actually condemn them. The daughter, she's getting married. She really does. She really is full of life. And it is unfair. It's just an unfair situation when someone is at the peak of life and then someone that they love is dying. Like it's just one of the things that sucks about death, but it's and like, it's, it's not, but, but it's not fair to ask her to not be full of life when she's full of life. Like she's getting married. She's about to have babies. She's like in full bloom. Like you just cannot, you can't stop her from flowering. And that's just one of the tragedies of the human condition. In the midst of life, we live in death is what the right. And the experience of death is in the midst of our death. We live in life. And so you capture some of his anger at that and some of her just like, well, what am I supposed to do about it? But you don't make her into a villain. Like imagine what Dickens would do with the wife, what Dickens would do with the daughter, the kind of heavy-handed villainy that those characters could have. Even Jane Austen, as great as she is, she'd pick sides. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I think that the wife is the closest thing to a villain. Yeah, for but sure. But he definitely gives her sympathetic moments and her grace. She is human. Right. She is human and he... Ivan Elliot made her who she is and ignored her for years and took her for granted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she didn't have the materials of love and a good relationship to work with. She's not, he doesn't, I don't think, I'm, you know, it's the difference, the old saw canard about the difference between sympathy and empathy. Tolstoy gets everybody. He doesn't, that doesn't mean he approves of everybody. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, that's right. right. Like, yeah, the wife is shallow. She's a, she's basically a bad person. Oh, yeah. But also, she's She's taking advantage of the funeral to... Try and secure her financial position. So that's her chief concern. Right. Yeah. But also, she needs money. Like, Yeah, how's she going to live? How's she going to survive? How's she going to take care of that boy? Yeah. All those realities are there. And she's got her self-pity, how he moaned for three days straight. You know? And you would feel that way. Just like we've all felt that way at a funeral. And you would unconsciously, we've all seen people do it. We don't know it when we're doing it ourselves. We've all seen others unconsciously expose their nakedness, say how much they were ready for the person to die without actually yeah. saying it out loud, without actually saying those words. Yeah, and they're all, they're, it's cliches. I'm just so glad that he's not suffering anymore means, nine times out of 10 means, I'm so glad I don't have to suffer anymore. That's just what it means for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> on that note <laughs> the hall of heroes listen to the horn it's ushering us into the hall of heroes our hero today Ivan Ilyich what a guy what a guy <laughs> what do you guys think of Ivan Ilyich oh I think he's a shallow eat drink and be merry kind of guy except what I actually what I was thinking when I read this book is I, di- I forgot about the eat drink and be merry and there's no such thing as death for me, crowd. Mm-hmm. That's an obvious crowd, but you just think of that phrase. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's some people's attitude. Well, actually, a lot of people have the attitude of eat, drink, and be merry. What's death? This is a different 
kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. That's what this guy has. I think I just, I benefit from being, all of us, from being in church for a long time. And forgetting, maybe, at least I forget, this is a thing everywhere. Mm-hmm. This guy's lots of people that I know. Duh. You know? Yeah. Well, no matter how shallow you take Ivan Ilyich, I think there's a truth, an inescapable reality to the fact that the fear of death is something we are all always trying to escape. Mm-hmm. And our view of death is and always will be and remain shallow, no matter how much depth it has relative to its true weight until we face it. And even then, you see, you see Ivan grasping for his distractions and his ways to forget about it mm-hmm. and to embrace the, or to embrace the lie until the lie becomes so undeniable. And then he flips a switch and he hates everybody else mm-hmm. for doing what he had been doing the whole time, right? And there's a truth behind that, which is that you just can't escape the drive to avoid facing and living in light of your own mortality. And, and how could you survive? And how could you live and how could you work if you were constantly 100% faced with it? Mm-hmm. And it's not that there's a sense in which hey, we're always facing that if we're facing God, if we're living our lives before God and trying to honor him. But there's just like, there's just layers, there's levels to it, mm-hmm. right? And it's why, you know, even the, even some of the best people that you've seen deal with death, when they face death themselves, it's still a totally new experience. It's just like every death is its own special thing. It's its own unique thing. And the bell tolls for all of us each time, but mm-hmm. it's different for each person mm. each time. Because yes, for thousands of years, people have lost their fathers and their mothers and their brothers and their sisters and their wives and their grandmas and their grandpas. But each time, it's the first time for somebody losing their dad. Their one and only dad hasn't died yet and they've not walked through it. And so for them, it's a first. And so every death is a first on multiple levels for multiple people and then, comes your own death, and that's its own first. And they all hit in their own special way, I think. And when you face them, you face them in, in unique ways. Mm. And so Ivan's especially shallow. Even those of us, though, who have grappled with death on some level can't escape an essential shallowness to us about it, I think. And I think that's the kind of thing that you just get increasingly exposed to the closer death comes to you. Your Close. own shallowness, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's just such a relative scale, a sliding scale. Yeah, I've seen a million movies with this. I think about it all the time. I've written poetry. I've read poetry. I've, but You could take Joe Bailey, right, who, mm-hmm. who wrote a book on death and buried a bunch of his own kids. I would say even a man like Joe Bailey, who's walked closely with death, still had on some level a shallow relationship with death because of just how hard it is to embrace and to wrap your head around. Yeah, it's unnatural. Because it is so unnatural, yeah. And so just fundamentally opposed to everything in us. Yeah. It is the enemy, and it is the last great enemy. And so you talk with somebody. You you just you can't escape that thing that he talks about in the book about Cicero, right? If... Cicero is mortal, and man is mortal, and Cicero is a man, therefore Cicero mm-hmm. is mortal. It's a syllogism, and every schoolboy knows it or whatever, and yet somehow fails to 
understand that they're mortal. Mm-hmm. And we always look at each of these scenarios and situations, the death, the weird accident on the side of the road, all of those things and think like the people in the book, I'm glad that's not me. That's not me. Therefore that's not coming for me. And then the people in the situation are like, yeah, I thought that would never happen to me. And we all have some hypothetical understanding that at some point we're all going to be standing there on one level or another or another saying, I never thought this would happen to me. And yet it's what happens to everyone and always has and always will. It's the only certain thing Mm -hmm. apart from taxes. And yet everyone listening to this right now is comforting themselves consciously or unconsciously with, but not yet. But not yet. So I don't have to think about it. Not right now. It's great that it's in 70 pages. and Yeah, and there's some fairness to that. Like you were saying, the living need to live, but they also need to prepare to die. Right. Memento mori. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a helpful book for that. It sticks in your mind. Oh, it's yeah. certainly it the kind feels, of book that can wake somebody up. It does. It, it feels like that. It feels fair. And because it's not moralizing, pointedly moralizing at you, it can get through, can mm-hmm. sneak under your radar. Yeah, and even though Tolstoy doesn't exactly deal in fables in the same way that like a Dickens does, yeah, it is a good little fable of like, well, you just decorated the house, you just got the new position, uh-huh. and that was the thing you really cared you about. Fool! Now your life is demanded yeah. of you. You got your two barns full of stuff. Right. Well, I think maybe we just talked about this, but let's enter into the villains layer. Or maybe we're leaving the villains. Is the villain death <laughs> in this particular case? I guess so. Uh, that guy that just wanted to play uh, checkers or whatever, the guy that wanted to play Vint, Vint, yeah, poker buddy or whatever. Yeah. yeah, they're all annoyed that their good Vint player is dying and ruining the game for them. <laughs> and I do love those two guys. The one of them gets trapped comforting the widow, and the other one's kind of like, eh? like uh, yeah, yeah, making yeah. faces <laughs> at him, like rolling his eyes, and so that's like so. I've watched that scene play out at a million funerals where it's like. You're not actually close friends with these people and you, hey, there's a social connection I need to make or there's something that I'd like to talk to or, you know, there's always all, it's like a wedding. There's always all this life and business and society stuff that has to keep happening and inevitably does and is happening right over the heads of the people that are grieving the most. So it's a nice, nicely observed scene. Okay, yeah, that was the villain's lair. What about those? <laughs> and actually, I think I just, I think we just keep jumping on top of the categories because the next category was the crawlway of secondary characters. All kinds of secondary characters. I mean, you could also yeah. argue that society is the villain because it's covering up the lie, yeah, perpetuating mm-hmm. the lie. But the only reason it does that is because that's that scary. So. Yeah. Ivan Illich really is the villain, right? He's fighting himself yeah, to that's the true. end. That's true. So he's fighting the, hero the truth, and he's the villain. fighting. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you could you could reframe it any way you want. It would be pretty easy to make it into a Marxist allegory. You know, the corporate moneyed men need us to be this shallow in order to keep their machines going. So Until actually, they die. Until they die. And it's actually big business that's the villain. But yes, it is. It is Ivan Ilyich. Uh, any other secondary characters you guys want to highlight? Or we talked about most of them. I just, I will once again. I say I appreciate the son. You just see him a few times, and he makes a mark every time. Right, and that is Tolstoy. I, I think probably if I can read, if I can psychoanalyze a little bit, that's him having pity for himself as a young boy. But he does it in mm-hmm. every book. That's why I say it. There's, al- there's <laughs> yeah. always a sad, lost little boy, and <laughs> he has to gra- grapple with the death and the sadness and the separation uh-huh. and the reality. Is this are- my fault? 
Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. But Tol- I Tolstoy does feel compassion. He, he does. Am I a bad boy? <laughs> he does step outside of per- perfect observation a little bit. Like he loves that. Those he just wants to give a hug to that character. That's yeah. right. But I appreciate that. But yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad too. It's a tender thing. Um, and yes, am I a bad boy? And Anna Karenina is yeah. the most, one of the most heartbreaking <laughs> things in all of books. Oh, Anna yeah. was a jerk, but poor Soyuzha. Train, train, train. Train, train of fools. <laughs> hey, guys. Mama wrestles alligators. Daddy works on carburetors. Train. Mama cheated on <laughs> train, train, train. Jumped That's in front of... Uh, <laughs> really bad one. Hey, the roadster just went by indicating twists and turns. Man, some clever plotting in this thing. I thought he just had a, some acid indigestion or something like that but is that what you thought yeah <laughs> the indigestion too. of ivan Ilyich isn't, isn't that the name <laughs> all the medical stuff is pretty nicely observed too Tolstoy. yeah and the doctors and then the guy having his moment where he's like this doctor thinks of himself just as genius and proficient and on his game and going through his motions and performing his part the way i did in court uh-huh. mm-hmm. these jerks yeah all of us Yep. Yep. Well, just the feeling that I think we've all had with doctors, which is they're going to put me through the rigmarole. They're going to say all the things. They're going to prescribe something for me. And it is all going to be exactly meaningless. There will be no, nothing will have happened. There will have been no transaction. But they'll feel good for, about themselves and they'll get a lot of money for it. And if I was blessed to be any stupider, I'd feel good about myself because we'd have done a thing. And you pay good money so that you can feel like you did a thing. Yep. Um, and I don't begrudge doctors that actually. This is me talking, not me reading Tolstoy. Like, yeah, it is nice to pay somebody to talk as a professional and do a thing. Helps if the thing's helpful, though. Yeah, it does. Hey, I'll tell you what is helpful. Spending a little time in the salon of style. place where we discuss the stylistic flourishes of his work. What do you guys think about the style of Tolstoy? What a dumb question, but... He's a genius. Yay. He's a genius. I think so many young writers could learn from Tolstoy in a way that they could not learn from, for example, Shakespeare, because Shakespeare is a genius at flowery language, and I love him for it. But Tolstoy is a genius at a perfunctory language, language that does a job, language that perfectly captures something, not because it's being ornate, not because it's drawing attention to itself, but because it's simply shows. Show, it's mm-hmm. simply doing its work. And you could be a great writer and never write a sentence that anyone wants to remember as a sentence, as a little piece of poetry, but Tolstoy is so great at that kind of thing. Although there were some really fun sentences and rhetorical flourishes yes, in this yes, book. Yes, yes, not saying there weren't. Um, he is a master of metaphor and of analogy and, and stuff like that, but they're just always in the service of what yeah. he wants to say mm. as opposed to showing off and doing calisthenics with words, and I really love that about him. Yeah. I, I love some show-offs too, but that's not what I love about Tolstoy. He's a good stylist. Anything else to say here in the salon of style? All right. Well, I think once again we're we've gotten ahead of ourselves, but now we enter into the haven of reflection upon deeper meaning. Y'all gonna die. We're gonna have that little thief on the cross awakening moment, like Ivan Ilyich did, kind of at the end. What did, what did you guys think of the final spiritual awakening of Ivan Ilyich? Kind of don't want to ask the question. Yeah. But I feel like maybe I should ask the question because it's a pretty obvious question for a podcast like this one. It's a neat trick to be able to get there and take your character there without actually getting there. 
Yeah. It's a neat trick to be able to give your character something like a gospel awakening without actually knowing the gospel. And somehow I don't resent it as much in Tolstoy as I do in almost anyone else. And I don't know why. Maybe that's just my affection for the man and for everything else that he does right. Um, it's not just that. It's that Tolstoy doesn't overmarket himself. Like someone else would blow up the effect of that and make a lot of it. I could just see it in their short story about a dying guy. There's enough plausibility where it all happens internally, right? Pagan and Christian alike can come to a place where they realize my life sucked because I suck. I've screwed all these people over and I just want forgiveness. And I see that maybe I could have it in my son's eyes and I've turned a corner. I can't even get the word forgive me out of my mouth. But what I know I I need is forgiveness. What I know I need is I'm wrong. And what I want finally is good for these people instead of good for myself. And that can be cathartic in any moment, especially maybe the moment facing death for anybody, pagan or Christian alike. It does not necessarily change anything. But that's that can be a real moment. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think Ben's right when he says one of the great things about Tolstoy is that he doesn't make it have to carry the weight of, like I, Dickens would literally say, and then the angels came and right. bore him to heaven, which would be dumb. Dickens' death scenes suck. For that reason, I mean, because he literally is like yeah. Tiny Tim, the angels, they have borne the, it's like that kind of crap. It's just like, it's insanely annoying. <laughs> no, but this all just happens in Ivan's head. Right. I mean, the other thing could be like a Tim Shull moment in East of Eden, which I love, but Tim Shull is supposed to carry the weight of the gospel. Like it is like right. a mm-hmm. redemption moment for these characters. They were bad. Now they are good. They were estranged. Now they are together. Everything is wonderful. And we're retelling the myth of Cain and Abel in America. But now Cain has like met Jesus or something like right. that. And, and forgiveness it, even for Cain. And it makes me cry, but and it's the kind of thing that, you know, you could imagine a whole bunch of corny gospel coalition articles about because it's like, it does evoke something like the cathartic nature of redemption, but Steinbeck really doesn't have anything. He's bluffing. No, but you see it and you see yeah. it in all kinds of places like pulling Steinbeck's a great poll. It's better than my poll, which is Hamilton. Right. The first thing that came to my mind. Lin-Manuel Miranda is going to understand that the most important cathartic moment in his entire three-hour thing is the moment the word forgiveness is sung. And it's going to hit and land for everybody, and he's going to comment on it and have Madison come out with tears in his eyes. Can we get back to politics or whatever? But it's still going to be that moment. And Tolstoy just gives that moment. He doesn't even give his character the ability to receive it. Just to know he needs it, Mm. to know he was wrong, to be able to at least in his heart say, I'm sorry, I love you, and to experience some joy and release at finally admitting that much and coming to grips with that much. And maybe there's gospel truth in it, and maybe there's not. We don't know. We don't need to know. Tolstoy doesn't care. Yeah. If Ivan Elliott had lived, if the doctor runs in with a miracle cure, does he actually get his act together? Does he not? Like it, we don't, know. I don't Anna know. <laughs> had that exact moment. Yeah. She very much did not. Well, Ben, how many things of wood? Isn't wood a thing, a unit Be- bed in this pans. book? What's that? How Sorry. many dead hands? Bedpans. Oh, how many bedpans? <laughs> Wait, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> yeah, I feel like we should give bedpans to Wrinkle in Time or something. I just called it the wrinkle. How many time. fancy curtains? What did, what did 
died putting up a curtain, right? Or he injured yeah. himself putting up a curtain. Sure. How many curtains? Fancy curtains. <laughs> it's curtains for you. It's right? curtains for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Out of? 462 do you give to the death of Ivan Ilyich? Uh, 460? I don't know if I have a real reason to not give it the full 462. Maybe I just want to be a contrarian. I give it 460. All right, Jake. 462. 462? Yeah, I'm going to give it 462. I'm the contrarian. I think it's pretty good. It's great. Pretty pretty good. Pretty You're the contrarian? You just did what I did. No, I said I'm not a contrarian. Oh, okay. Ben's the contrarian. Ben's the contrarian. Speaking of contrarians, only contrarian would not become a patron of our podcast. Yeehaw. Because in order to be a patron, you go to patreon.com forward slash the bucketing. And, oh man, you know what I've learned in podcasting? If the sentence doesn't make sense, then just keep moving. Keep talking. Just keep talking. Just be assertive. Just pretend like what you said made total sense. And you probably won't make a living. But you'll have some fun. Have a few laughs. Jake, how do you become a patron of the... We <laughs> tell the people what they need to know, please. Yeah. What you need to know is that if you go to patreon.com forward slash the booking, you can sign up to give any amount of money you please to underwrite the cost of producing this show and to show your gratitude and thanks for the value that we provide you. In turn, we give you value back. So for $10 a month, you get a donor shout out. That's right. My favorite, my personal favorite reward level is $50 a month mm. reward level because I think it's the one that provides the most value. It's a chance to really show us that you love us and care about us and you want the show to keep going. But you also get to participate more or less in our book club where we give you a signed, personalized, autographed copy of each month's book several months in advance. So you have time to read along with us, be a part of the show, be a part of what we're doing. And you get every reward tier below that, including your donor shout out. So, and I think that's probably our most popular level too. I know we have a lot of just straight up donor shout outs. Mm -hmm. But, man, we have a lot of people signed up at that $50 a month yeah, level. And, you know, it's a great way to contribute to the show and to build your library at the same time. We're the ones curating the books for you. You don't have to think about it. You just get it. You get it in time to read along with us. You get to put it on your shelf when you're done. And you get to then participate in the discussion with us on the show. So it's just a great way to really be a part of the show. It's that reward level is the one where I feel like eh, these are our partners. These are our people. You know, we could have these people on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. And then there's even more than that. You know, we just read Dominic by William Steig. Yeah. Dominic by William Steig. That was a listener's choice. So at the reward level of $100 a month, you get to really be part of the conversation. You get to help choose a reading list. So, yep. And I think know. it's fair. I think we can officially say the podcast took a little sabbatical, which we apologize for, but we're back, baby. Sometimes in the past we've been guilty of over-promising and under-delivering, but generally our philosophy is under-promise, over-deliver. This time, I just want to promise deliver. and deliver. And so you're going to be getting at least a podcast a month from the booking from here on out. And yeah, sign up for those books. Signed, personalized, and autographed. Ben signs them. Jake personalizes them. I autograph them. It's good stuff. That's not true. We just all sign them and write cute little quippy things. <laughs> 
It's fine. I think uh, more or less quippy, depending on the book and the mood in the room. Yep. Ivan Illich said things like, <laughs> kick the bucket, you old. R.I.P. R.I.P. Dorf. Some clever, clever stuff. Rest in power. Yeah, rest in power. I think mine did say rest in power. <laughs> the one and only Ivan. Ivan Illich. All right. Well, we got to do donor shout outs. So the way that works is I will say a donor. And then Jake and Ben will alternate and they will say what kind of a hat they think this person would look stylish in. It could be a baseball cap, a newsboy cap, a pork pie hat. I just need to know what kind of hat you think someone like the artful Anthony Dodger and bootstrap Betsy should wear, Ben. Definitely a Kubra's. A Kubra's. Yeah, it's an Australian brand of bush hat, Nathan. Oh, okay. <laughs> ah, a Kubra. It's going to bite me. <laughs> thousand points to me. Mate. Mate. It's going to bite me. Good day, mate. Good day, mate. You call that a Kubra? <laughs> this is a Kubra. Oh, man. I'm glad Australian. we all have seen that movie. You've never seen that movie? So, no, I'm glad we all have. I haven't. It's just a torture. Touch, it's just one of those dumb. It's not a good movie. No, it's not a good movie, but it's one of those dad movie touchstone things. That everybody has seen it, whether they wanted to or not. I think we started watching it when, when I was a very young lad. And I think at some point the lady takes off her clothes, perhaps, and we stopped watching it. So I've only seen part of that movie. But oh, but I mean, I've, I've seen like. You call that it? No, I've seen like. Yeah, all that, I mean, that's. A, I'm familiar with it as a cultural reference. There was that moment where, I mean, the whole existence of Crocodile Dundee is just like Indiana Jones is a thing. How do we create another Indiana Jones like character and mm-hmm. give him his own shtick? I know, Australian bushman comes to the big city. People love a but fish he still out of has water. A hat. He still has a hat. He's still behaving like, and he's like, who are these? I was going to say, who are these fags? Because that's about that's the, the level of, that he says. That's actually, yeah. <laughs> that's actually kind of the humor of that thing. All right. What kind of hat should Little Anthony's Cigar Store wear, Jake? The ball cap. Ball cap. Yeah, that makes sense. Mortal Chelsea E, what kind of hat? Oh, a, let's see here. What have we got here? You should a, have your hat list ready to go, A chulo. A chulo. Chulo. It's a Peruvian, a Bolivian hat with ear flaps. Oh, sure. I made from alpaca wool. I think I can picture that. Yeah. Uh, what about Jimmy Beam and can. Little Annie Oakley, Jake? Ball caps. Ball caps. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Boss of the Plains hat. Uh, what kind of hat? Boss of the Plains. Okay. We're going to have to have an explanation for every one of these. Let's let the people look it up themselves. Okay. The, the Keith Master? <laughs> A ball cap. <laughs> Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also see us loose, including till we have faces. Hard hats. Hard hats, like for a construction <laughs> worker. Love it. Yeah. 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 yeah, I need an explanation on that one. Can you explain? I mean, the no, fact I can't. That, is it a hat? That you wear in a hard way, but it's actually soft. Yeah, it's like or, that's what it is, Jake. Hard okay. <laughs> what kind of hat? You understand so well, Jake. I think yes. they need hard hats because, considering till we have faces, one of their favorite books, like <laughs> their philosophy, is always collapsing around them. DJ Sammy G, ball cap. Benny and Danny Tiberius, Yamaka. <laughs> there you go. His name is Benny. Kind of vaguely. There you Yiddish. go. Yep. Eric and Catherine from Beyond Window Breaks, ball caps. Lavender's Green Dylan Dylan, Newsboy caps. Oh, I love a new good newsboy cap. No constrictor? Ball cap. Marichip? Phrygian cap. A Phrygian cap. I won't ask. Anthony who's cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese and brick red. It's, when did brick red get thrown in there? I have no idea. Ball cap. Jujitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Uh, pith helmet. Cool. Midnight Ninja Ellen? Ball cap. Jay of Rack and Ruin? Top hat. Nice. 
Eric and Kate, the Camp Champ Kings, who are warm and love bees. All caps. <laughs> Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Turban. Nice. Cold Steel Cody. Wall cap. John Bombadillo, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tennille, his mate. <laughs> Doing pirate hats. <laughs> a woofy cap. A, a woofy cap? Woofy cap. Does that cap fart? <laughs> it does not. <laughs> what, what kind of a monster do you think I am? I don't know. Somebody doesn't. Somebody invented a cushion that does it. Some, some person that wasn't a human monster, as far as I'm concerned. Nope. I don't like farting humor. Saxophone Alex? A ball cap. Ryan, the Terror of Texas, and Jarek of the Cream and Crimson, who no longer are stuck in the cold, please send cheese. Cowboy hat. Nice. <laughs> One cowboy hat for the both of them. Ben Solo and Kylo Ren. Ball cap. John, the Cosmic King of Chaos. Tricorn hat. A tricorn hat? Tricorn hat. Tricorn. Oh, tricorn, sure. Like yep. a, one of those revolutionary yeah. war people. Yep, yep, yep. I had a dream when I was a very young boy that I went outside my house and there was a tricorner hat on the ground and it was covered in feces. <laughs> <laughs> For somebody who doesn't like scatological humor. <laughs> Don't. Hey, it's a very bad dream. Thank you for telling us this dream. <laughs> I think the Grim Reaper then hunted me down with a tape measure or something like that. Makes sense. That was a scary dream. Matty, Matty, Batman. The ball cap. Annie, are you okay? Get your gun. Sombrero. Nice. Thor Ragnar, Josh. Ball cap. Lady of the Crystal Lake. Shovel hat. Mysterious Phantom. <laughs> Ball cap. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, the Dark of the Lord of Death, and is the Brooding Bride, Maya? Santa hats. Maya. Santa hats. The Remains of the J. Ball cap. Lamort de Trenton. Sailor cap. Daniel, a man among men. Ball cap. And Jen, who strikes again every now and then. Pork pie hat. A pork pie hat. Not sure I can picture what that is, but I sure do know it as a... George Banks. Okay, sure. Like a round... It's like kind of like a bowler, Buster but Buster Keaton. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, like a flat. Buster Keaton's hat is flat, right? Yeah. Flat, right, right. Flat straw hat. Yep. Is that a pork pie hat? Yep. Just a straw yeah. hat is pork... Yeah, it has straw. a band around the top. It's, okay. It's, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Why don't we wear those? Because we're stupid. Yeah. No, I think we that's get rid true. of them. That's yeah, that's what I'm saying. We're stupid, so we should wear them. Okay, this is the end of the podcast. Ball cap. Party hat. Ball cap. Oh, boy. I hope I can find the <laughs> closing music here. Ball cap. Miter. Ball cap. Goofy. <laughs> Ball cap. A goofy hat? Goofy. A glingery. Ball cap. Pillbox hat. Ball cap. Dunce cap. Ball cap. Fedora. Ball cap. I thought the music would make Another fans. Ball cap. <laughs> infinite <No>. fans. <laughs> Ball cap. <laughs> More infinite fans. <laughs> Ball cap. Fans. Ball cap.